Life Baptist preaching, where we grow disciples, we grow relationships, and we grow in Jesus Christ. This series is entitled, On the Christian Life. Studying the book of 1 John, we are taught what should and should not be included in the Christian life. We hope that you join us here each Lord's Day, and you can subscribe so that you don't miss a single Sunday. First John 5, and we're, we're going to read the first five verses. Um, so this, as we consider our study as on the Christian life, this morning uh, we come to a topic of overcoming the world. Overcoming the world. Now this is a hopeful topic, but it bears weight and responsibility. We should see by the end that we as Christians, by faithful, loving obedience, the Christian overcomes the world. And so I want to give a bit of a disclaimer uh, because this is one that steps on my toes and, and it's possible it could step on toe, your toes this morning as well. Uh, so... Let's stand as we honor the reading of God's Word. 1 John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And every one that loveth him that begat loveth him also that is begotten of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not grievous. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Who is he that overcometh the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Father, we come to you once again this morning. And we see such a hearty truth, a glorious truth. the way that we have this promise of overcoming the world. Lord, we're, we're a people who are affected by this fallen world and all of the effects of sin. And yet in Christ we have such hope. And yet, Lord, by, by the words of John here, we come to know how we might have this hope, how we might act and how we might respond in light of this hope. Father, I pray that You work in us, in our midst and in our own spirit to become all the more faithful 
as we seek to glorify you with all of our life. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There are basically three areas that we see or, or that I'm going to seek to highlight in this morning's sermon. We see that the Christian has faith, the Christian has love, and the Christian obeys God's commands. So right out of the gate, John says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ, is born of God. Everyone who believes. That's the qualifier for those who inherit the kingdom of heaven. So this is who John says is born of God. They're born again, born of the Spirit. In this passage before us, we hear this uh, begetting language throughout Scripture. And the reality is, is that the Christian has faith. Now, what I did not mean is that the Christian should have faith. We shouldn't make the mistake of the Romans by... Making faith some form of work. John's not giving a command. He's describing the inevitable circumstance of the Christian. What I mean is that there is no such thing as a Christian who doesn't believe or who does not have faith. There is no circumstance in all of Scripture that allows for one who does not believe and yet inherits the kingdom of God. Likewise, there's no circumstance in all of Scripture where one does believe but does not inherit the kingdom of God. The only Ones who believe are those to whom the promise of the kingdom is given. And the only one who receives the promises of God are the ones who believe. There is no mixture of those things within Scripture. Yet, in this passage alone, of course, especially with all of the rest of John's teaching... We have a number of evidences of this faith. If the Christian is to have faith, and this is a reality that must be true, John gives us some things to test and prove our belief in God through Jesus Christ. And so this is precisely to what John turns his attention to. So the one that believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and then everyone that loveth him that begat, so the one that loves God, the one of whom we're born, is also, or they love also him that is begotten of him. 
So John uses love as an evidence of our being born of God. Now, if you would walk through this, I want you to look a little bit more closely. Now, John said in his gospel, or Christ, he records Christ saying in his gospel, if God were your father, then you would love me. He seems to assume or makes clear that the one born of God loves the father. Now, undoubtedly, that's a glorious heavenly relationship that we do well to think on. But now he says the one who loves the Father loves the one born of God. In other words, the Christian loves God and the Christian loves those who believe Jesus is the Christ. What it takes to be born of God is to believe Jesus is the Christ. And then if we love God and we love the one, if we're born of Christ, then we'll love also all of those other believers in Jesus Christ. That's the church. The one who loves God will love the church. Now there's a pattern among some to dismiss the value of our gathering such as we see today. There's some people that I talk to that they suppose that they themselves are of the kingdom. They might even say that they're better. They're better than than the churchmen or they're better than the family that attends each Lord's Day but they despise the gathering themselves. They give all kinds of imaginations that in fact they are the true Christian. While they're ready to condemn so many within the church. These may even call it love or loving to avoid, dismiss, or disregard God's commands. They may see this, obeying this word is too rigid and unloving. They may tell us that their approach is far more relevant or loving or more Christian. That's crazy. Now, just as John says in his passage that there's no such thing as a Christian who does not believe, there is also no Christian who does not love the church that Christ redeemed. John goes further by defining this love of God in the litmus test by which our love is tried. By this, in verse 2, Tells us we, if we love God, then we love the church, everyone who's born of God. And then he explains, by this we know that we love the children of God. If there's a question raised in your mind right now, he tells you, surely you love the church if when we love God and we keep His commandments. 
Now, did y'all notice that? John checks up on us and he says, here's how you know. If, if you love what God loves, if you love those born of God, he doesn't point us to some overwhelming emotion, some sublime act of service or an affirmation of one another as an evidence of our love. No, John tells us this morning that the greatest display of my affection for you comes in in my obedience to God. This this shouldn't be that hard for us to understand. The parent that, that loves their child is going to obey God. They're not going to be abusive. They're not going to neglect their child. They're going to love them like like a father. They're going to be a protector of the widows and the orphans. The one who loves and obeys God is most effectively loving their own children. If If you want to love your children better, if you want to give your child the the love that maybe you never experienced, love God. Obey Him. Seek obedience is what John is telling us. And you will better love your children. The love of the husband for the wife, if indeed he's Christian, will lead him To treat her as the weaker vessel, the way Scripture says. He will wash her in the water with the Word. He will be her protector and her provider. He'll obey God's commands. And we'll see that he'll be more effective in his love for his wife. His obedience to God is an obvious sign of his love for her. The pastor who loves his congregation will seek first to obey God. The pastor who obeys God will be in God's Word. That's the most loving thing for the congregation. He will obey it for matters of corporate worship in the church. He'll be in the Word for the study and the teaching of doctrine. But that pastor will seek first the obedience of God and His commands. He will not be the pastor who seeks selfish gain. He will not be the pastor who seeks first your pleasure or entertainment. He will not be the pastor who embezzles money or one finds out about an adulterous affair. That pastor who does not obey God does not love his congregation. And I think the argument can be made that that person who does not obey God does not love, but they hate their congregation, spouse, or their child. So those who do not keep the commands of God, they do not know love nor do they show it. Obedience is love. That is what John writes to us. For this is the love of God. In verse 3, that we keep His commandments. 
That's the love of God. The Christian keeps his commandments. His commandments are not grievous, John writes, for whosoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. So we see that overcometh the world, but he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, John just calls the love of God keeping the commandments. Now, we thought James was the, was the only one that was a little bit legalistic. I want to remind you at this point that this is the New Testament that we're reading. The Christian, born again in the blood of Jesus Christ under the new covenant that administers God's grace to us, is obedient to Christ's commands. Now, if you don't like that, you're not disagreeing with me. You're disagreeing with the Bible. John makes clear this evidence of our status in the kingdom of God. It's it's not the basis. It's not the means of our salvation. It's not the foundation of our righteousness. He's not saying that at all. He makes clear the one that overcomes the world. It's by our faith. Nevertheless, one cannot be born of God and have no mark of Christ in the way he or she lives. Transformation will and does occur. Now that will happen by means of immediate repentance of sin. And some of that will happen over the course of time as we mature and are sanctified. Either way, you can expect life to look different upon coming to Christ and being born again the way that John describes it. As we learn to love and obey His laws in faith. Now there's a question that remains. Passages like this take take time and they take thought to, to make our way through as we consider how are we to pursue such faithful living? How is it that we can be justified in Christ alone, by faith, by grace alone, through faith alone, and yet be given such stringent commands to be obedient, to obey God's commands. How is that one and the same? How is this not contradictory? And and seeing that it is not, that the faith produces the works, that it makes us to act and live in accordance with all that Christ did fulfill, it makes us not to despise the law that we've broken. It makes us to love the law. But how are we to do that? In what way can you keep these commands or can you know these statutes of the Lord and do so in faith? Now, one way this happens is through catechism. Now, I want to use this as a point of explanation because we've been doing this already for some time discipling our children, but it's occurred to me that I haven't done a very good job defining it. It sounds foreign. 
It sounds a bit like the imperial church or something, uh, some form of sacramentalism or something. And I think it's sad that some of these terms have become foreign to us. And I think the church has suffered because of it. So often we wince when we hear the word doctrine. We think that that divides. Not knowing that that word literally means teaching, instruction, law, or Torah. Doctrine. We fail to understand likenesses and differences between the words of ordinance and sacrament. We're not going to discuss all of those, but it shows a glaring need for catechism, which itself, the word, means Book for instruction. I want to introduce you all to some words given by the reformers. Those who drew us back to the scriptures. Those who got the scriptures into the homes of the average Christian. Martin Luther, a name we should all be familiar with. He writes this in his own introduction to a catechism, his his shorter or smaller catechism, written in 1529. This is right after the dawn of the Reformation in 1517. Let's put this into perspective. He gives this reason for writing a catechism himself. He says, remember, coming out of the Catholic Church, bringing the light of Scriptures, he says, the deplorable, Miserable conditions which I recently observed when visiting the parishes have constrained and pressed me to put this catechism of Christian doctrine into this brief, plain, and simple form. How pitiable, so help me God, were the things I saw. The common man, especially in the villages, knows practically nothing of the Christian doctrine. And many of the pastors are almost entirely incompetent and unable to teach. Yet all the people are supposed to be Christians. Having been baptized, receive the Holy Sacrament, which is what he calls the Lord's Supper, even though they do not know the Lord's Prayer, the Creed, or the Ten Commandments, and they live like poor animals of the barnyard and pig pen. What these people have mastered, however, is the fine art of tearing all Christian liberty to shreds. As this man forsook all to restore the gospel to the church, to bring the word of God to bear, he found churches, churchmen, and congregations ignorant of God's word. It seems Luther's opinion that ignorance is what drove the church to those unbiblical patterns as depicted in the Roman Catholic Church. It was their ignorance. He seemed to know that the Reformation was of little value unless God's people were taught God's Word. John Calvin, another reformer, addresses the reader of the Geneva Catechism This is 1545 this way. 
It has ever been the practice of the church, and one carefully attended to, to see that children should be duly instructed in the Christian religion. That this might be done more conveniently, not only were schools opened in old time and individuals enjoined properly to teach their families, but it was a received public custom and practice to question children in the churches on each of the heads which should be common and well known to all Christians. To secure this being done in order, there was written out a formula which is called a catechism or an institute. Thereafter, the devil, miserably rending the church of God and bringing it upon, upon it fearful ruin, of which the marks are still visible in the greater part of the world, overthrew this sacred policy and left nothing behind but certain trifles which only beget superstition without any fruit of edification. Of this description is that confirmation, as they call it, full of gesticulations, which worse than ridiculous are fitted only for apes and have no foundation to rest upon. What we now bring forward, therefore, is nothing else than the use of things which from ancient times were observed by Christians and the true worshipers of God and which were never never were laid aside until the church was wholly corrupted. If you had doubt on what Martin Luther, what we suspected of Martin Luther, there was no doubt that John Calvin says this is what led to what we know in modern or at least Reformation era Roman Catholicism was in part or in whole due to a lack of Christian education. Calvin, too, sees the endless ritual, habitual superstition and flamboyant garb of the Roman church as a fruit of hiding the rich doctrines of Scripture from our children. I want to remind you of Psalm 78, 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my law. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us we will not hide them from their children, shewing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and His strength and His wonderful works that He hath done. We will not hide them from their children. Our generation is confronted with the reality that the commandments of God have been hidden from us and from our children. We have not been taught these things. We've not taught these things to our children. They have been hidden in their schools. They are oppressed by our government. These commands are hated by our society. And these truths are shunned in our places of work. Is there any doubt on this matter? I would ask you, where are our children? Where are our children? Why are they not in the church? Perhaps it is because in many churches they're not even welcome. They're forced to be entertained instead of catechized. Where are the families of the church? Why are men without their wives 
and women without their husbands in worship together? Is it no longer important to instruct one another in the Lord? What about us who are here? Have we been adequately discipled? Let's look to an example. And, and I would like to look to. This is the first question out of 129 questions in the Heidelberg Catechism. It's a Baptist catechism from 1590, 1563. I apologize. Question one. What is your only comfort in life and death? Here is the answer. That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with His precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil he also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to Him, Christ, by His Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for Him. That answer to a single, a very short question references multiple passage, passages from 12 different books of the New Testament. And they're footnoted in it. I just didn't cite them for you. Now I wonder, are we equipped? Are our children equipped to give an answer such as that? If, if asked of our children today, what is your hope in life and death? What would they answer? Would they have a majority of New Testament passages cited at the ready? Are they equipped to give such an answer? Do we know the doctrine, the vocabulary, or even the scripture to give such an answer? And yet that's the goal. That's a separate catechism. But that's what the goal is, is to teach your children these things and point them to the Scriptures for those answers. Really, the goal is to equip us to give excuse for the joy that we have within us, which we're commanded to be prepared for. The confessions of old have assigned as much weight to the discipleship of our children. The original preface of the 1689 Second London Baptist Confession has this to say regarding family worship. Verily, there is one spring and cause of the decay of religion in our day which we cannot but touch upon and earnestly urge a redress of. And that is the neglect of of the worship of God in families by those to whom the charge and conduct of them is committed. May not the gross ignorance and instability of many with the profaneness of others be justly charged upon their parents and masters who have not trained them up in the way wherein they ought to walk when they were young 
but have neglected those frequent and solemn commands which the Lord hath laid upon them, so to catechize and instruct them that their tender years might be seasoned with the knowledge of the truth of God as revealed in the Scriptures, and also by their own omission of prayer and other duties of religion of their families, together with the ill example of their loose conversation, having in, in, injured them first to a neglect and the contempt of all piety and religion. We know this will not excuse the blindness and wickedness of any, but certainly it will fall heavy upon those that have been thus the occasion thereof. They indeed die in their sins, but will not their blood be required of those under whose care they were, who yet permitted them to go on without warning, yea, led them in the paths of destruction? And will not the diligence of Christians with respect to the discharge of these duties in ages past rise up in judgment against and condemn many of those who would be esteemed such now? In other words, what are parents doing if they are not raising their children in the love and admonition of the Lord? What are we doing as a church if we are not handling the rich doctrines of Scripture in a systematic and a thorough way. It's the task that we set out to do with every service that we conduct here. Our own church covenant under which this church was planted, which uses the covenant that's been adapted from John Newton Brown's Covenant for Churches, which was written in 1853, stresses this in paragraph 3, we also engage to maintain family and secret devotion to religiously educate our children to seek the salvation of our kindred and acquaintances to walk circumspectly in the world. Are we keeping that covenant with one another here at New Life? How are we to do that? We must instruct our children. We must acquaint them with the Word of God. It is the promised blessing, the prophecy of old, that I will write my Word on your hearts. How can we neglect such a promise of God. I don't care what you call it. I don't care how you do it. But we must pick up the mantle of catechesis. All of Scripture. All of history. And even our own church covenant. Binds you to instruct your children. And as we have learned. Those who are born of God. Will love those who are born of God. This is that love of God that you obey His commandments. In doing all of this by faith, John tells us we overcome the world. We overcome the world. Christ came to give us peace. We will have trouble in the world, 
But we have no fear because he has overcome the world. John writes that in his own gospel. Christ is the overcomer. And if we have not faith, if we have not love, if there is no obedience, then none of that is true. So surely we can consider for ourselves that by faithful, loving obedience, the Christian overcomes the world. Father, we pray for just that this morning. Father, we act as if we are exhausted, if the battle is waning and we are on the losing side, as if our numbers have, have been cut or diminished or as if we have been made weak or have been effectively silenced or are prevented by means of etiquette. And yet, Lord, we know this is just what you have done so many times past. You might glorify yourself in the faithful, loving obedience of your people. Father, I pray we'd become an obedient people. Father, I pray that we would repent and that you would change our, our hardened hearts that would prevent us from discipling our children, not entertaining, not, not acquainting them with tradition, not acquainting them with ritual, not reading colorful story time books, but Father, that we would make young disciples of those to whom we've been entrusted with Lord, that we would speak these things diligently, daily, in our home, along the way, when we lie down and when we rise up. Father, that we would no longer count our incomes as more important. That we would no longer count our retirements as more important. That we would no longer count our entertainment as more important. Or our vacations. Or, or even our secular education. Or our success. Father, surely, surely there are those that have not bowed the knee. Surely our children will receive these words with tender faith. God, please anoint us for this service of discipling our families well. God, I pray that this would be so true of us that you would hide your word in our hearts that we would know it. That we would be able to recall it. Lord, that we would train ourselves with every resource to be prepared in and out of season to give an excuse for the joy we have within us to be prepared to give the whole, not part, but all of the counsel of your will. God, bless our efforts here at New Life. Lord, that our children would hear the lessons that they partake of. 
in our corporate family worship, in our time of catechism. Lord, that our teaching would be attended and heard and applied in how to evangelize and encounter the world, how to overcome it. As we teach on Sunday nights, Father, that you would make us a people of prayer. As we gather with the saints here in the middle of each week, God, surely we are a born again people. Help us to act like it. We ask this in the name of the only Christ, of the only hope, of the only source of our resurrection, our Savior, our King. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow disciples, we grow relationships, and we grow in Jesus Christ. Please subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday.